Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. We are still in the Easter season as we in the Catholic Church continue the 50 days of Easter. And I want to talk a little bit today on the whole mystery of Easter itself, which is the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. It is the central event in the Christian faith. One really can't say they are Christian if they don't believe in the resurrection, both of Jesus and his promise of our own resurrection. After all, he said, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you also will be. And we as Catholics, as Christians, celebrate this not just one day, but entire 50-day season with the resurrection as the central focus of what we celebrate, because the resurrection of Christ is the primary and central event in the faith of a Christian. It's the first message that the 12 apostles gave on that first Christian Pentecost, in which they began to preach Christ crucified, now risen from the dead, and the church was launched on an unsuspecting world. That was their message. This Jesus whom you crucified has been raised, and we celebrate that. So, it doesn't make any sense for anyone who claims to be a Christian to say they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but that's not to say they aren't out there. I recall an encounter with a minister of a Christian denomination called the Disciples of Christ, and he was a minister of the Disciples of Christ. But he told me in no uncertain terms he does not believe in the resurrection. He thinks this life is all there is, and we follow Jesus accordingly. And I didn't get into a debate with him, but I couldn't help thinking to myself, how can that be that a person says they are a disciple of Christ, and yet they do not believe in the resurrection. Now, I don't know if that's a point of faith for the disciples of Christ. It may be unique to this particular man and this particular minister. But the more I thought about it, the more it kind of made sense because this minister also engaged in a lifestyle and a value system that was hardly conducive of a Christian, of a follower of Christ, let alone a minister of a Christian denomination. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Without a resurrection without an afterlife, then there really is no moral culpability in this life if this is all there is. However, if one is to be truly a Christian, one cannot deny the resurrection because that is the central event, that is the springboard from which the Christian faith was launched on the world. This Jesus, whom you crucified, has been raised, addressed to the Pharisees and anyone in Jerusalem who participated in that event. And it was a day in which Jewish people from all over the known world, all over the Roman Empire, were converging on Jerusalem for the Jewish Feast of Pentecost. And so the apostles had a vast audience, and it is said that on that first Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to their numbers because of the preaching and the inspiration that came from the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And we celebrate that great miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, not just on Easter Sunday, but throughout the 50-day Easter season. But it's interesting to note when you look at the scriptures and how they tell the story of the resurrection, 
as central as that is to the Christian faith, not one gospel gives a first-hand account of the event. Not a single gospel of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give a first-hand account of the resurrection itself. The closest you get to it is in the Gospel of Matthew, which says that the women were coming to the tomb. They were wondering, who is going to roll the stone back for us? And then they feel a great earthquake. They see the angel of the Lord descending from heaven, pushing the stone back from the tomb, and then sitting on the stone. The women rush forward, look in the tomb, and Jesus is gone. You don't get any closer to witnessing the resurrection firsthand and still miss it completely. So it's interesting that as central event as the resurrection is to the Christian faith, none of the Gospels give a first-hand account of the event itself. It always begins with the empty tomb. Finding the tomb with Jesus gone. Now, at least three of the four Gospels do not end there. Because we have, in addition to the empty tomb, a series of stories that tell of Jesus appearing in his resurrected glory to various disciples. And even in the Acts of the Apostles, we have the story of Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. But in the Gospels themselves, we have a number of stories of Jesus appearing to various people, usually the first of which is to Mary Magdalene, but not always. What's interesting to note, however, in these appearance stories, and something that I always like to make note of in talking about them, is that these are not just simply appearance stories. They are, in fact, recognition stories, because one common thread we see in these stories is Jesus appears to the person or persons, and at first, they don't recognize him, which would appear to be unusual because this is Jesus, it's his resurrected body, but when he first makes his appearance, they don't recognize him. In the Gospel of John, he appears to Mary Magdalene, and she thinks he's the gardener. In the Gospel of Luke, he appears to the men on the road to Emmaus, and he walks with them for some time, and they don't recognize him. When he appears to the eleven disciples, they think it's a ghost. And when he appears on the shore, after a night of the apostles not catching any fish, they don't recognize him on the shore. Look up the stories. Virtually all of them begin with the person or persons did not recognize Jesus. I suppose the exception would be Thomas the Apostle, who we call Doubting Thomas, because he wasn't there to begin with. In his case, he was told by the other disciples that Jesus had been raised and that they had seen him, but he would not believe it unless he saw it himself. So there was always a catch in each of the stories, either an out-and-out refusal to believe in the single case of Thomas, or those who saw Jesus did not recognize him at first. But there was something that Jesus did in each case that brought about the recognition. In the case of Mary Magdalene, she thought Jesus was the gardener until Jesus addressed her by name. And I often like to 
in reading the gospel intone Jesus addressing Mary not so much as a loving statement of her name or a loving declaration of her name, but in a tone in which he's surprised she doesn't recognize him, to which she recognizes him because of the familiarity that these two share. Jesus knew her and addressed her by name. In the case of the eleven, when Jesus eats in their presence, he shares a table fellowship that they are familiar with. What was one of the things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders always were annoyed with Jesus is when he ate and drank in the presence of sinners and the outcast and the marginalized. Now Jesus eats in the presence of the apostles, and it's a familiar activity. He shows them his hands and his feet, but they're somewhat incredulous And so he says, do you have anything to eat? And he eats in their presence, and they believed and they recognized him. In the case of the apostles in the boat, Jesus asks, have you caught anything? And they did not recognize him. He says, cast your nets on the opposite side of the boat. And it's when they have the great catch of fish that the beloved disciple recognizes Jesus. And then Peter jumps in the water and swims ashore. But they did not recognize him until the miracle of the great catch of fish. And Thomas, of course, is obviously recognizing of Jesus, but Jesus calls him to task for not believing, or at least asking the question and pointing out a higher standard. Do you believe because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Now, in all of these stories, we could see a metaphor for the various ways in which we recognize the risen Jesus in our midst, even down through the centuries. Not so much in a glorified human manifestation standing in front of us the way he did with Mary Magdalene and the apostles, but rather how they come to recognize Jesus, and even some metaphorical understandings of these stories. As I mentioned before, Mary Magdalene recognized Jesus when he addressed her by name. So there is a close familiarity between the two. And certainly, people who seek to have a relationship with Christ remind themselves that Jesus knows us by name. One popular slogan for efforts to increase vocations to the priesthood and the religious life refer to those programs or slogans as called by name. And we believe in Jesus who knows us personally, each and every one of us, and he knows us by name. In the case of the eleven, when they recognize Jesus as he sits and eats in their presence, we can certainly recognize the risen Jesus as he eats in the presence of the marginalized, something that Pope Francis has made a central theme to his papacy is the church going out to the marginalized, to those on the periphery, to the outcasts. And we see the presence and action of the risen Christ in our midst as the church goes to the marginalized, seeks out those who are lost, and has a fellowship with people otherwise considered undesirable or outcasts. In the case of the apostles in the boat, one can see the great catch of fish as a metaphor for the church in its early decades. And the great catch of disciples, the great catch of souls for Jesus in those early decades in which Christianity spread by leaps and bounds 
symbolized in the great catch of fish. And just as the beloved disciple recognized that it was Jesus on the shore because of the miracle of the great catch, so too we can recognize the continued presence and action of Jesus in and through the church and its work of evangelization to bring in those souls for Christ, to go and make disciples of all the nations. So we can understand the catch of fish metaphorically, even as it is presented in the Gospel of Luke. Now Luke presents this miracle at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and associates it with the call of his first disciples. And then he declares to Peter, from now on you will be catching men. In the Gospel of John, he places it at the end and associates it with the resurrection of Jesus, and it also concludes with the commission of Peter to feed my lambs, feed my sheep, after Jesus asks him three times, do you love me more than these? But in both cases, it's associated with a catch of disciples, a catching of men. And we see that risen Jesus, and we recognize that risen Jesus among us in the work of evangelization of the church, throwing that net out through preaching the gospel to catch souls and make disciples of all the nations. But perhaps the most understood metaphor or understood story of the appearance of Jesus and how we continue to recognize the risen Jesus in our midst today is in the story of the road to Emmaus, which I always like to say is the story of the first mass. The Last Supper notwithstanding, the road to Emmaus is the story of the first mass. True to the pattern of the resurrection and recognition stories, Jesus is not recognized by the men as they walk along the road. Jesus is speaking to them, but it is not until he breaks the bread in their presence that they recognize him. And they go back and they tell the other disciples, not that they recognized him in the man sitting in front of them or the man walking with them on the road. The story ends, they told of how he came to be known in the breaking of the bread. But after the event of the breaking of the bread, they ask themselves, were not our hearts burning within us as he spoke to us on the road? And what did Jesus speak to them about? It said, Jesus opened up the scriptures and spoke of all the passages in the law and the prophets that referred to him. What is Jesus doing? He's speaking of the scriptures, just as we do in the Mass. And then Jesus breaks the bread, just as we do in the Mass. And in recognizing Jesus in the breaking of the bread, the disciples on the road to Emmaus recognized the presence of Jesus speaking to them as he opened up and preached the scriptures to them, just as we do in the Mass. We believe that it is Jesus who is leading us. It is Jesus who is preaching to us. It is God's word being read to us in the scriptures. And it is the risen Jesus we recognize in the breaking of the bread. So with all due regard to the Last Supper, which was the Passover, which has its own prescribed rites and rituals, in many ways, the story of the road to Emmaus is the story of the first Mass. The word is preached and the bread is broken. And we continue to recognize the risen Christ in our midst in the preaching of the word and the breaking of the bread. And so... In many ways, the words said to Thomas, Do you believe because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen yet still believe. Can on the one hand not be applied 
to anyone who is a true Christian, because if they are a true Christian, we can't say that we don't see Jesus. We may not see him as Thomas did, but we nonetheless recognize his presence among us. And we see metaphors to how we recognize that in the various stories of Jesus' resurrection. But perhaps another passage of the resurrection can relate also to the story of Thomas. Because there is one gospel of the four in which there really are no appearance and recognition stories. And that is the gospel of Mark. Now, if you were to open the Gospel of Mark to the ending, you would find there would be a series of recognition stories. And in many ways, it's a summary of the other resurrection stories we read in the other three Gospels. But some of your Bibles make a note that it is a longer ending and then there is a shorter ending. And it's believed and pretty much accepted by Scripture scholars that those portions of Mark's Gospel were added later and were not a part of the original ending of Mark. Doesn't mean they're not inspired. After all, every book in the Bible goes through a process of development. But the Gospel of Mark was believed to have originally ended with the empty tomb. The women come to the tomb and find it empty. The angel declares to them that Jesus is not there, he is risen. And the angel tells them to go and tell his disciples that he is going ahead of them to Galilee. And there you will see him. Now, there's an irony in the story of Mark. Because if you look at the Gospel of Mark, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus performs a miracle, and almost every time he tells the recipient of that miracle, do not tell anyone. And in every case, they do so anyway, in direct disobedience to the words of Jesus. Now, one might say, well, maybe Jesus intended to do that. And my sarcastic side would say, yeah, perhaps that's true, because the best way to get Catholics to do something is for the priest to tell them not to do it. And the best way to get them to not do something is for the leadership of the church to tell them to do it. Now, that is obviously a very sarcastic approach, but one can certainly relate to telling people not to do something, and they do it anyway. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Don't eat the fruit of the tree and they do so anyway. But at the same time, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus later asks the apostles, who do people say that I am? He's telling them not to say anything, and they do so anyway. So now Jesus is saying, what are they saying? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, the people who are just simply going off and telling in disobedience to Jesus, are getting it wrong. So it's not something to be admired or something to conclude was intended by Jesus. He said, don't do it, knowing that they would. And somehow that's how he got the word out. The word that was getting out was not correct. But Jesus asked those who were obedient to him, who do you say that I am? And they get it right. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Whereupon Jesus says, don't tell anyone. So you have a gospel in which Jesus is regularly telling the recipients of his miracles, don't tell anyone, and they tell people anyway. Then you come to the women at the tomb at the end of the gospel. And here they are given permission. They are told, go and tell his disciples. 
and the gospel in its original ending, according to most scholars, these women who now have permission and have been told to proclaim, go away from the tomb, and because of their great fear, they say nothing to anyone. In other words, the gospel of Mark ends with a cliffhanger, unlike the other gospels. It ends with a cliffhanger, it ends with the empty tomb, and no appearance stories, and the women walking away saying nothing to anyone. And in many ways, that is perhaps the best resurrection story in which we could apply the story from John of Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe, because Jesus is not seen at the end of Mark. The last we see of Jesus is dead on the cross and placed in the tomb. It's almost as if the author of Mark is looking at us and saying, they are too afraid to say anything. What do you think happened to him? And what are you going to do about it? This is perfectly in line with what we've seen in the Gospels in two instances. One is a parable, and the other is a metaphor that Jesus gives. In the metaphor, the people ask Jesus for a sign, and he says, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. But he begins that response by saying, it is a faithless generation that seeks a sign. In the parable, we have a story of the rich man and Lazarus. And many remember the first half of the story. The rich man lived in splendor, Lazarus lived in squalor, each of them died, and the rich man went to the realm of the dead, while Lazarus went to the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man was tormented. But often people forget the second half of the story, in which first the rich man asks Abraham to allow Lazarus to give him comfort, and Abraham says he cannot do that. And so the rich man says, then send Lazarus to my house where my brothers live so that he can be a warning to them and what happened to me will not happen to them. And what's the response of Abraham? He says, they have Moses and the prophets to listen to, to which the rich man says, no, if someone comes back from the dead, they will be convinced, to which Abraham disagrees and says, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they listen to someone, even if they were to come back from the dead. In other words, if they aren't going to recognize and listen to what's right there in front of them, the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, then even a person coming back from the dead will not convince them. And here's how Mark ends. His original ending, not the longer ending or the shorter ending, that does have appearance stories, very brief ones. But it ends with the empty tomb and the women too afraid to say anything to anyone, even though they have been given permission to do so. We don't see Jesus. And basically, the author of Mark is looking at us who read the story or who hear it proclaimed, asking, what do you think? What will you do? The reader, through the characters, are reminded by the angel of the words of Jesus. Jesus told them three times, the Son of Man must be handed over to evil men, he will be crucified and he will die, and on the third day he will rise. Now we come to the tomb after his death and it's empty. Do we really need Jesus to appear to us? Do we believe in the words of Jesus as people of faith? 
Do we trust in the words of Jesus and his promises? Do we trust the teaching of the apostles? Do we trust what we read in the evangelists? Do we trust in what we see and observe in the work of the church and what the church teaches? Do we really need to see a manifestation of the risen Jesus right there in front of us? And if we do, will it do any good? It's the ultimate example of what we read in a different gospel, the Gospel of John, when Jesus says to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. A true Christian who puts their faith in Jesus do not need these manifestations. And we see the stories of these appearances don't speak that well for those who were privileged to see Jesus after the resurrection. Why? Because he appeared to them and they didn't recognize him. And in almost every case, it involves a reprimand. Sir, where have you taken him so that I can come and get him? Mary, it's me. To the man on the road to Emmaus, how slow you are to understand all that the scriptures have said. To Thomas, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen yet still believe. And in the case of Saul, the glory of the risen Jesus appears to Saul in the Acts of the Apostles and admonishes him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So, what is it saying in all of the instances of the appearance slash recognition stories? Jesus appears, but they don't recognize him at first. But blessed are those who have not seen, and the Gospel of Mark is at least one instance of the four Gospels in which there is no appearance of the risen Jesus, at least at the original ending of Mark which ends with the women leaving the tomb, too afraid to say anything to anyone. The end. At least the original ending. This leads us to the question of true discipleship. And how many people in the early church went to their graves, in some cases horrendous deaths, in the midst of persecution, having never seen the risen Jesus? Now given that, let me talk for a few minutes on one appearance story that is not told anywhere in the scriptures. Although it is a part of a grand tradition of the church, even St. Ignatius of Loyola in his Ignatian Exercises leads in that exercise a meditation of this appearance story that does not occur in the scriptures, but is still drawn from a tradition in the church, and that is the presumption that the first person Jesus had to have appeared to was his mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, it's one thing to reflect on what it must be like to put ourselves in that scene and the emotion that must have been between the two of them when he appeared to his mother after the resurrection. And the presumption is, of course, who else would he appear to first? Of course he would appear to his mother. But if we're talking about his mother, who we celebrate as the prototype of Christianity and the perfection of Christian discipleship, the perfection of faith in Christ, when we look at the challenge at the end of Mark and the admonition to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe, 
While it is a very grand reflection on what it must have been like, how we picture that moment when the risen Jesus reveals to his mother that he has risen from the dead, have we ever meditated on the possibility that maybe Jesus never did appear to Mary? That he never appeared to his own mother? Because there was no need to. Mark ends with the empty tomb, and do we put our faith in the words and the promises of Jesus? Do you think Mary would have put her faith in the words and the promises of her own son? Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. And yet how many times have we seen throughout the scriptures in the Gospel of Luke to the Blessed Virgin Mary, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, blessing bestowed upon Mary by Elizabeth. We have the Beatitudes of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. All of these can certainly be applied to the Blessed Virgin Mary as the prototype and perfection of Christian discipleship. When one woman comes to Jesus and says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you, Jesus actually contradicts her. He doesn't say also. He says, Rather, blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it, which we know was the case with the Blessed Mother. All these Beatitudes can be applied to Mary, the mother of Jesus. What about that Beatitude Jesus gave to Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen, but still believe. And is Mary not good enough for that blessing? Now, which was it? Did Jesus appear to her or did he not? I always answer those questions the same way. I don't know. I wasn't there. Devotion and sentiment might lead me to say, oh, of course he appeared to her. But it's not in the scriptures. And while it is a good reflection, as Ignatius leads us in his spiritual exercises, to picture and imagine that encounter of Mary with her risen son, it's also, I think, a good meditation to reflect upon why maybe that wasn't the case. And I don't think it's a detriment to the Blessed Virgin Mary because we look at all the other stories of the resurrection of Jesus. And at least the ones that were told in the scriptures always involve the person not recognizing Jesus at first. And in some cases, him reprimanding them. Would that ever happen with the Blessed Virgin Mary? So maybe Jesus did appear to her first. I know there are many who find great comfort in that idea that he was that close to his mother. But considering on more than one occasion, Jesus does not necessarily lift her up. Rather, blessed is the one who hears the word of God and keeps it. Who are my mother and who are my brothers? The one who hears the word of God and keeps it is brother and sister and mother to me. Perhaps Jesus knew that his own mother did not need to see him in his risen glory. She knew it. She believed it. She trusted in his words. So he appeared to people who would struggle with it, who would not recognize him on the road to Emmaus until he broke the bread, who would not recognize him on the shore until the miracle of the great catch of fish, who would not recognize it until they probed the wounds in his hands and his side, and who would not believe it until he ate in their presence, 
or who did not believe it to the point that they persecuted the church until Jesus knocked them to the ground and said, why do you persecute me? And who knows, maybe Mary heard about the resurrection from Peter, Mary Magdalene, Thomas, who would have been shocked that she hadn't seen her son. But when they said to her, your son has risen from the dead, perhaps her answer was, I know he has. Being that this is a year of St. Joseph, I always like to include, especially in conversations about Jesus' mother, an inclusion of his earthly father, Joseph, who perhaps also had an encounter with Jesus, not after the resurrection, but after the crucifixion and before the resurrection. We say in the Apostles' Creed, every time we pray the rosary, that Jesus descended among the dead, or as some translations put it, descended into hell. But he descended among the dead to bring forth the faithful departed up into the heavenly kingdom through the gates of heaven now opened. And while we often like to, from a deep sense of devotion, say, well, of course, Mary was the first person Jesus would have appeared to after the resurrection. Well, when he descended into the realm of the dead, who do we think was the first person Jesus may have looked for? How about his own dad, his own father, his comrade in carpentry? Do we picture Jesus descending among the dead to retrieve the faithful departed who had gone before him in death and first looking and asking, where's the carpenter? Where's my father? Where's the man who gave me my name as a son of David? And that's an appearance story we often don't consider, but I think it's worth considering during this year of St. Joseph. But where do we recognize Jesus' presence? the presence and action of the risen Jesus among us, in the breaking of the bread, in the evangelization of the church, in the continuing conversion of souls for Christ, who every year at Easter are brought into the church through the sacraments of initiation, in the fellowship that the church shares with the marginalized and the outcast, the poor, the downtrodden, and while perhaps we can't really apply ourselves to the beatitude that Jesus gave to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen, because hopefully we do see it. But maybe we can apply ourselves to that because we don't see Jesus as Thomas did. But hopefully we are blessed because in not seeing, we still nonetheless recognize the risen Jesus still among us in the various ways that we can relate to in the stories of the resurrection that we see in the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John, but always falling back on the example we get in the Gospel of Mark. Do we put our faith in the words of Jesus, the tradition handed on to us from the apostles, the words given to us by the evangelists, the writers of the Gospels, and the continued work of the church? And in that, we celebrate these 50 days of Easter, but hopefully we celebrate that all throughout the year because we are Christians. We are followers of Christ. We believe in the incarnation of the Son of God, and as Christians, we believe he rose from the dead. Without that, we cannot call ourselves Christian. So thank you for joining me. Be sure to visit my YouTube page and my website, my website at www.frbillnicholas.com 
and my YouTube page, Father William Nicholas. And I thank you for visiting me on this podcast. Hope you have a blessed 50 days of Easter. And with any luck, I'll talk to you again soon.